Hello and welcome to this podcast series of the first 50 years of the history of the American Republic. I'm Chris McKenna and I'm here with my co-host, Kathy Conroy. Hi, Chris. In this last podcast of the 50 most important years in the history of the United States, James Madison has his two-term presidency. Chris, the Madison presidency is dominated by foreign affairs related to the War of 1812. During his term, another two states were admitted to the Union and a national bank was rechartered. At the end of the War of 1812, the economy and the country were continuing to grow. Madison's our smallest president at 5 feet 4 inches and about 100 pounds, but he is an intellectual powerhouse and is commonly referred to as the father of our Constitution. When Madison takes over the presidency from Jefferson in March of 1809, he has a very weakened American economy due to the Non-Intercourse Act being in effect, which is a U.S. trade embargo against Great Britain and France, who are in the Napoleonic Wars with one another. The fighting between Great Britain and France is intense. France wants to cut Great Britain off from trade with all other countries in the world. Essentially, Napoleon wants to isolate and starve Great Britain to death. Great Britain and its Royal Navy retaliate by setting up a naval blockade going into Europe, and depending on the country of origin of merchant ships, various fees were paid to Great Britain for passage through the blockade. As part of Great Britain's counteroffensive to Napoleon, in 1807, Britain had issued a proclamation referred to as Orders in Council, a decree where Great Britain expanded the scope of its naval blockades and told France that they could not trade with anyone and that the Royal Navy was going to block all the French ports as well as the ports of France's allies. The United States saw this as both a violation of international law and an attempt by the British to restrict the United States trading with France. In April of 1809, the British minister named Erskine negotiates with Madison, and they have an understanding that Britain will revoke its orders in council. Consequently, Madison issues a proclamation where he revokes the embargo the United States has on Britain in the Non-Intercourse Act of 1809. Unfortunately, the agreement negotiated between Erskine and Madison is canceled by the British Foreign Secretary. When Madison gets news of this in early August of 1809, he rescinds his proclamation and the United States goes back to its policy of not trading with Britain. And meanwhile, in May of 1810, Congress passes Macon's Bill Number 2. This bill reopens trade with the world However, its wording is a bit convoluted. The bill lifted all the trade embargoes pertaining to Great Britain and France for three months. Then it also said that if either Great Britain or France agree to respect American shipping, no seizures, no harassments, then the U.S. will cut off trade with the other country, unless the other country also agrees to this. Madison wasn't happy with the bill, but he had to live with it. In November of 1810, Napoleon tells the U.S. that he will abide by that bill. Madison is suspicious, but he takes Napoleon's offer. Napoleon, of course, has his own agenda on how to use this 
acceptance of the bill to stress the U.S. and British relationships. Now that Napoleon is supposedly playing by the rules under this bill with the U.S., he calls for the U.S. to place an embargo against Great Britain, as stipulated in the bill. Unless, of course, Great Britain is also going to agree with the bill. He then further calls for an embargo against Britain across all of Europe. Britain subsequently threatened to use force against the United States, and Napoleon withdraws his embargo demand against Britain, knowing he had already increased the tensions between the United States and Britain. February of 1811 rolls around and Madison tells Great Britain that we're going to stop trading with them unless they rescind their orders in council. Great Britain says, no deal. Not until France ends its trade restrictions against us. Well, Madison has had enough. He just reestablishes no trading with Great Britain. And then, Chris, in May of 1811, a U.S. battleship is attacked by Great Britain and the U.S. ship fires back. On June 1st, Madison asks Congress for a declaration of war against Great Britain. Later that June, Great Britain says they're ending their orders in council. In July, a new British foreign minister arrives in the United States and warns Madison that there'll be consequences relative to American commerce if the U.S. continues its non-trading policy relative to Great Britain. In November of 1811, Madison addresses Congress and he prepares them for a potential war and legislation advances to increase the size and strength of the Army and the Navy. In March of 1812, Great Britain and France just cannot curb their bad behavior, Chris. Madison gets written proof that the Governor General of Canada is interfering in U.S. politics by trying to encourage a rebellion in the New England area. Canada is under the control of the British, and this action simply further irritates Madison. British Foreign Minister tells Madison the orders in council are back in effect, and France has sunk an American ship, showing clearly they don't care about the previous deal they agreed to with America under Macon's Bill Number 2. But then France was always manipulating America. In April of 1812, the U.S. Congress passes an embargo on all shipping to be effective July 4, 1812, so that American ships have enough time to get to ports. This is clearly a strong signal that war is coming. Timely communications may have prevented or at least delayed the war. In June, June 1st, 1812, Madison talks to Congress and lays out the reason for declaring war on Great Britain. June 4th, the House of Representatives approves the declaration of war, and now it goes to the Senate for approval. June 16th of 1812, Great Britain revokes its orders in council, but now the news has to be sent to the United States. June 17th, the Senate approves the declaration of war against Great Britain. June 18th of 1812, Madison declares war on Great Britain. The news of Great Britain rescinding the orders in council arrives in June, but after the declaration of war has already been made. Our reasoning for declaring war on Great Britain was that British actions are impeding the U.S. on international trade. Britain did see some U.S. sailors off of the ships to work in the Royal Navy. British subjects who are present in the Western territories of the U.S. 
continue to support the native tribes in their fights with American settlers. Also, Madison was always concerned that Great Britain wanted to enhance their foothold on the North American continent to plan another attack on America. After all, Great Britain really should not have lost the Revolutionary War. The possible New England rebellion issue only added to this overarching concern of Madison regarding the motives of the British. In November of 1812, Madison is re-elected for a second term as president and will be inaugurated in March of 1813. First, some highlights of the War of 1812. It lasts for two and a half years and ends in December of 1814 with the Treaty of Ghent, which is the city where it was negotiated. At that time, Ghent was a city in the Netherlands, although it now is part of Belgium. The best-known battles in the War of 1812 involve Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and New Orleans. On August 24, 1814, some two years into the war, about 4,000 British soldiers invade the capital city of Washington in retaliation for the burning of Canadian Parliament buildings in York, the capital of Canada, by American troops in 1813. At this time, the master plan for the city of Washington is still a work in process, and the city is described by some historians as, quote, somewhat of a construction site, end quote. The British come into the city, and the first thing they do is burn the Capitol building. It's believed the building would have withstood the fire, as the walls were made of generally fireproof materials, but the roof consisted of wood and glass. So when the roof caught fire and collapsed, it proceeded to destroy the main section of the Capitol building, including the Library of Congress, which was located in the Capitol building at that time. Now, after they burned the Capitol building, about 150 soldiers follow their commanding general down the road to the White House. As the British were descending on the city, James and Dolly Madison and all of the workers had gotten word of the British invasion, and they had already left the White House and taken what important items they could with them. According to a White House historian, when the British soldiers enter the White House, they find a dinner table has been set for 40 people, and so they proceed to eat before they burn the house down. Of course, one of the most famous stories from the burning of the White House is how Dolly Madison saved the full-length Gilbert Stuart portrait of George Washington by taking it with her. And Chris, this was not an easy feat because the painting was bolted to the wall, and so it actually took several people to save the portrait as they had to remove the painting from its frame. Another large save that's not mentioned as much as the portrait of Washington is that of a gentleman named Stephen Pleasanton, who worked for the federal government at the time, and he took the Declaration of Independence with him to Virginia as the British burned the city. But there was one building in the capital that the British would not burn, and that was the Marine Barracks. Kathy, that's very true. At the Battle of Bladensburg in Maryland, the Marines, seriously outnumbered, delayed the British advance into D.C. for two hours, giving the Madisons time to evacuate, save the Declaration of Independence, those things. In a token of respect, since the British had fought the Marines in the Revolutionary War and now in the War of 1812, while they burned most of D.C., 
the British left the Marine barracks unmolested. Today, the U.S. Marines and the British Marines still exchange birthday greetings in a token of continued respect. The same British troops and their commanding officers who burned Washington continued onward and arrived in Baltimore on September 12, 1814. The Battle of Baltimore is both a land and a sea battle. Baltimore has Fort McHenry, located at the entrance to the harbor from the Chesapeake Bay. The British troops tried to work a combined land-sea maneuver, but their land attack during the day was not successful. One of their top generals was killed in the fighting, and the British retreated into the city. The next day, 16 British ships approached the harbor and the fort. They can only get so far into the harbor, and they begin a 25-hour bombing attack on the fort. After a full day of bombardment, they finally decide that a successful attack by water was not possible. Their bombs could not reach far enough onto the land, and they leave the harbor with the American troops having successfully defended the city. An attorney named Francis Scott Key happened to be on board a British ship to negotiate with the British regarding their imprisonment of his friend. Prior to the bombing, both Scott and his friend were placed on an American ship that was held by the British in the harbor until the end of their attack. Scott watches the bombing of Fort McHenry from the ship he is on. When the British finally ceased their attack, it was unclear whether Fort McHenry and the Americans had been able to hold their position. Scott then sees the American flag still flying over the fort and writes the poem, The Star-Spangled Banner, which would, after a number of years, be adopted as the national anthem of the United States. That same flag that Francis Scott Key saw flying over Fort McHenry is now on display in the American Museum of History in Washington, D.C. And Kathy, to be honest, it's spectacularly awesome to actually see the actual flag that flew over Fort McHenry. It, it is, Chris, and I've seen it. It's something everybody should see. I agree. Everybody should. Well, in December of 1814, we have the Treaty of Ghent. After about four to six months of negotiations, the U.S. and Great Britain finally sign a treaty. But the news will not reach America until February of 1815. In the interim, in January of 1815, the Americans fight their last battle with the British at the Battle of New Orleans. Given that the news of the treaty has not yet reached America, on January 8th, 1815, Andrew Jackson cobbles together an army of 4,000 people made up of a mix of soldiers and citizens. The citizens included both slaves and free black men to battle the 6,000 British soldiers in this Battle of New Orleans. Jackson's battle strategy, Chris, and the positioning of his troops relative to the British invasion is an epic battle tale and gives America a decisive victory with some 2,000 casualties for the British and only a few dozen for the Americans. Jackson becomes a national hero. This is the last major battle of the War of 1812. What did the War of 1812 accomplish? Well, some people say there's no clear winner between the British and the Americans. Great Britain agrees to relinquish any claims to the Northwest Territory in the United States. There are still disputes about the northern boundary of the U.S. and Canada, but they'll be referred to and resolved by an appointed commission. 
The treaty establishes in its first article that there shall be a firm and universal peace between Great Britain and the U.S., which continues to this day. A lot of historians agree that this war was more of a nuisance to Great Britain, who still had to focus their efforts on Napoleon and had a much bigger battle on their hands with France. However, the War of 1812 did establish the young United States as a country that could hold its own on the international stage and one who could battle successfully against the British. And as you would say, Chris, it's when America finally kicked the British out of our affairs for the last time. Chris, the War of 1812 is often called our second war for independence. America was finally free from British control and a recognized player on the world stage. The United States, finally, after 50 years, was a completely free and independent nation.